Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When Maine voters cast ballots to expand Medicaid, they probably thought, okay, that's done, but not according to the state's governor. Give me the money and I will enforce the referendum. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll explore the reality of referendums and we'll explore a tent city for heroin users. So why is this better than a shelter? Uh, you can come and go as we want and we feel, we feel safe. We'll also meet a Puerto Rican family settling in in their new New England home. I'm more at peace now that we have a place to stay and we're able to provide a stable home for the baby. Plus an art battle that's anything but tranquil in the Berkshires. They knew that they didn't want to face this. Two lawsuits and an investigation by the Office of the Attorney General. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to start in Maine, where voters earlier this month approved a ballot measure that would expand the Medicaid program there, making it available to more than 70,000 Mainers. It was approved by a pretty substantial margin, and it essentially overrode repeated vetoes by Republican Governor Paul LePage of legislation that would have expanded the program. All right, then. Ballot measure passed. More people eligible for Medicaid. Well, not so fast. Give me the money, and I will enforce the referendum. That is, of course, Paul LePage. He says he won't or can't do anything unless the state legislature finds the dollars to pay for this expansion. That sets up another fight with the state's legislature, and it leaves us asking, what's the deal with these state referendums if the laws don't actually, you know, go into effect? Steve Missler is the chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio, and he joins us now. Steve, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. Before we get into this big question about the ballot measure on Medicaid expansion, Let's get to the backstory here. How did it get to be a referendum in the first place? Well, it got to be a referendum by the fact that the legislature tried a half dozen times to pass it. They did pass a couple of bills, but they were inevitably vetoed by Governor LePage. And because there's not enough Democrats and and Republicans who support Medicaid expansion in the legislature, those vetoes were sustained. So despite repeated attempts, um, Medicaid expansion failed here. And so what activists did is they went and used our citizen initiative process to put it straight to voters. And as you mentioned at the top of the segment, um, it passed overwhelmingly over, you know, by, by a very significant margin, nearly 20 points. Of course, LePage isn't the only Republican governor in the country to reject this Medicaid expansion. It, it was all part of Obamacare. That's right. In fact, um, from that Supreme Court decision, which was originally focused on the individual mandate, a surprise decision was that it took away the mandatory expansion of Medicaid, which is a key component of the Affordable Care Act in that it sort of bridges the gap between the people who would receive subsidies on the individual market and the other folks that are 
uh, lower income that don't qualify for those subsidies. So Maine, um, there was something between 16 and 80,000 people that fell into what's called the coverage gap. And so that's why so many people were supportive of this because they feel like that's going to take care of that coverage gap and uh, basically um, bridge that gap between the, the people who receive subsidies and the other the people who already qualify for Medicaid. And in Maine, that's not a small segment of the population. I mean, seventy to 80,000 people, that's an awful lot of Mainers. That's right. It, it, I mean, we are just over a million in Maine, and, uh, and we're also very rural and not a very wealthy state, too. So you can imagine that's why a lot, so many people would qualify, according to the estimates. So I'm a bit confused here, though. The referendum passes. It's, again, pretty substantial. And then we hear Paul LePage say, well, we need money to pay for it. I, I, I thought that a referendum meant, well, this is law. We're going to expand Medicaid and the federal government's going to help pay for it. And Maine's got to now come up with the money. Or I guess it doesn't work that way, huh? No. Well, it, it's 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 right on this in the sense that it will still be law. So uh, 45 days after the legislature reconvenes in January, the law will go into effect. And then I think it's 120 days after that, the federal government has to come up with the money to send to the state so that people who are eligible under the expansion can, can receive coverage. Then in that interim, the state has to implement a bunch of rules and regulations to make sure that the, the system is up and running for those people to apply for those benefits. What the governor is saying, essentially, is that that costs money, and so does Medicaid expansion, because even though the feds are paying for the majority of it, 94% for the first couple of years, the state still has to pay, and and the nonpartisan budget office has said it's about $55 million a year. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I need that money now before we can implement Medicaid expansion. People who support Medicaid expansion are saying, hold on a second, this is the law of the land, we can come up with this money. We just need some buy-in from your administration, some assurance that you're going to implement, and we can get this done. But he's basically drawing a line in the sand and saying, listen, no, we are not going to do this unless you guys cut a bunch of other services to pay for it because I'm not going to allow you to raid our rainy day fund or raise taxes to pay for the state share. Notwithstanding what LePage has said in the past about whether or not he believes that the state should extend Medicaid to more people. Is he right about the fact that there's a hole in the budget if it is implemented? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing with Medicaid is that that money will be necessary as claims are processed for the people who expand. So there's no telling that the 60 or 80,000 people that could qualify for Medicaid expansion are suddenly going to rush to our Health and Human Services office on day one when they're eligible to get Medicaid. They may not do that. They may not even be aware that they're eligible. And so what people are saying on the Democratic side is, listen, we don't need that $55 million right now. We may need it eventually, but we won't need it unless the projections on people who will actually get Medicaid and who's eligible meet up. And so it it wouldn't necessarily blow a hole in the budget, especially if there is some consideration of tapping the rainy day fund or perhaps raising a tax. But, you know, that's that's a long ways down the road, at least in the eyes from the sides of the Democrats that are uh, are saying that LePage needs to implement this in full faith of the law. Uh, This Medicaid vote is part of a big trend of big questions being decided through ballot initiatives, something 
we here thought was reserved for a place like California. Uh, last year, both Maine and Massachusetts voters approved recreational marijuana through a referendum. Mainers also approved ranked choice voting. Meanwhile, Massachusetts voters rejected lifting the state cap on charter schools. I, I want to bring into our conversation Colin Young. He covers the Massachusetts State House for State House News Service. Colin, welcome to Next. Uh, hi, John. Thanks very much. Before we get into some specifics on what Massachusetts voters have voted for or not voted for, why do you think we're seeing more of these questions being uh, settled at the ballot box in the way they are? Uh, well, at least in Massachusetts, I think it's uh, because the the voters maybe are a bit ahead of the legislature. Uh, in the case of marijuana, the legislature had made it perfectly clear that they had no intention uh, of taking up uh, the question of legalizing marijuana uh, in either the House or the Senate. So voters took it into their own hands. And uh, here it was a sort of three-step uh, steady and incremental process that led us to legalization uh, where advocates brought first uh, decriminalization of possession of marijuana and then uh, the creation of a medical marijuana program <clears throat> and finally last year the full legalization of adult use marijuana. It's interesting you say though that lawmakers didn't have any real desire to take this up is, is it just because any sort of vote around legalizing drugs is seen as a, a political football, even in a blue state like Massachusetts? Exactly. The, the Senate president here uh, about two years ago referred to marijuana and really any drug issue uh, as being a third rail issue that no one wanted to touch. Uh, here in Massachusetts, when advocates started uh, gathering signatures to get the legalization question on the ballot, the Senate created a special committee to study legalization, to study what had happened in uh, other states like Colorado. Uh, and when the Senate president tried to find senators to serve on that special committee, uh, there was only one senator who was willing, who came forward and was willing to serve on that committee. Uh, so even though the, the plan wasn't to vote on legalization, just studying it, uh, it was hard to get uh, anyone who was willing to do that. Steve, how about in Maine? How did that end up as a ballot initiative? Uh, same sort of thing, no stomach from the legislature to take it on? Yeah, similar circumstances, at least as it relates to, to marijuana legalization, which there had just been a number of bills that had stalled in the legislature, um, even when Democrats had full control um, from 2012 to 2014. It just, they just couldn't get it through. Overall, though, there's another trend that's happening that uh, nationally, which is that I think progressive groups in particular are trying to use the citizen initiative process. We've seen this in Maine because there's just been a huge spike in, in ballot initiatives here because because they can't get what they want done in the legislature. You saw that with Medicaid expansion last week um, in 2016. We had a record five ballot initiatives here, including the marijuana legalization. Then there were the, the ranked choice voting, which you had mentioned and uh, increase in the minimum wage, which they couldn't get through here either. And nationally, this is a trend that has been going on for a while. It's a symptom of the fact that Democrats have lost their grip on state houses across the country. I think the GOP, as of last year, controlled something like 60 percent of state legislatures, the majority of governor's offices. And so what you're seeing is a big push at, uh, at uh, in citizen initiatives to, to try that route instead because I think progressive groups think that their policies are popular, um, even if they can't get them through GOP-controlled legislatures or split legislatures, which is the case in Maine. 
Well, Colin, but this is what's so fascinating to us about this. So in Massachusetts, uh, progressive groups go around the legislature. Uh, they get a recreational marijuana bill passed. And then ever since that point, we've seen, well, the legislature involved once again. Maybe you can get us up to speed exactly on what the delays are and how this is back in the hands of the same lawmakers who didn't want to deal with it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. Uh, the same lawmakers who, who had no appetite to take this issue up on their own, uh, as soon as the question passed a little more than a year ago to legalize marijuana, the legislature stepped in and said, oh, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to perfect this uh, ballot initiative law and we need to rewrite it. Uh, so first what they did last December was delay uh, the implementation of a lot of that law for six months. So possession, uh, gifting of marijuana still became legal here in Massachusetts last December. Uh, but the rest of the law, the part of the law that spells out how uh, retail shops can open, how this uh, uh, regulated industry uh, will function here, that was all pushed back by six months. And then the lawmakers took that time to rewrite the ballot law. They took the ballot laws passed uh, for medical marijuana in 2012 and the ballot law passed in 2016 for legalization uh, and uh, essentially rewrote them. They <clears throat> expanded the commission that oversees uh, the industry. They took it out of the treasury, made it a sort of quasi-independent group, and, and really spelled out a lot of what they want to see in the regulations uh, in that law. And they fiddled a bit with the tax structure as well. I know that heading into that ballot measure, a lot of people were looking at the Massachusetts model that was put on the ballot and wondering whether or not that was the preferred way to tax marijuana and actually make any money off of it for the state. Is is that been changed as well? Oh, absolutely. The tax uh, was a, uh, that was probably the leading uh, issue that lawmakers wanted to change. Uh, they all saw the tax uh, as, as way too low uh, that when it first passed in the ballot question. They said they, they were concerned that that tax rate wouldn't cover the cost of regulating illegal marijuana industry here. So that tax rate has now been raised to 20 percent, and it's uh, a very state and local taxes uh, involved in that. So, Steve, similarly, in Maine, it's been through a little bit of a process since that ballot measure passed. What's been happening there? Basically, it's the same situation where they quickly enacted a moratorium earlier this year to, to delay basically any rulemaking that would establish the retail market. They established a commission, which basically immediately went forward and started rewriting the law. Now, they didn't tinker with our medical marijuana law. They didn't go quite that far. But they basically took the citizens' initiative that passed and just started to overhaul it almost completely. I mean, they, they jacked up the tax structure. They even contemplated a 20% effective rate. And then they actually passed a bill. They did pass a bill with a lot of bipartisan support. But again, they ran into the governor, who is a... Um, uh, you know, a fervent opponent of legalization, and he basically vetoed the bill, which basically left everybody at square one because he's saying, I was excluded from this process when he really wasn't a participant in it. Um, and now what we have is what was passed by voters, and that's actually divided the legalization community. We have a segment of people who were advocates or helped pass the ballot measure 
that supported the bipartisan bill that the legislature crafted. And we have another segment of the legalization community that um, likes the status quo, even though we won't have a regulated market if that's the case and we'll continue on without um, getting any of the tax benefits or any regulations that would have applied to legal marijuana. So, Steve, do you see a possible backlash against lawmakers? Obviously, Paul LePage is not going to be governor forever. He's he's going to be out of office relatively soon. A lot of these lawmakers, though, would like to keep their jobs. Do you think that people, whether around this um, Medicaid expansion issue or around the marijuana issue, are going to look to lawmakers and say, hey, look, we voted for something. Why don't you pass bills that actually reflect what we voted for, not things that might be politically expedient for you or or things that change substantively what we voted for? I think it's very possible. I mean, if you look at ballot initiatives in the past, I think lawmakers were really reluctant to mess around with them for the very reason that you just described, which is that there might be an electoral consequence for doing that. I mean, in reality, a ballot measure or a ballot-initiated law is no different than any other law. The legislature can go and change that and everything else. But the big deterrent from that is that this is actually the will of the voters, if you will. But that seems to have not be considered so sacrosanct, uh, at least in Maine. I mean, we had four ballot initiatives that passed. All of them were tinkered with. One of them was repealed outright. And then others are just sort of in stasis. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I think that that's a possibility. And you have to remember that the people that put these issues on the ballot were well-organized, in many cases, well-funded. They're very active. And so these are the same type of people that can hold lawmakers accountable. I mean, these are pressure groups. And so that very well could be the case. And we'll probably find out next year, which is when legislative elections will occur. And we'll also have a big governor's race. So those will be occurring at the same time. And we'll see. We'll see how that comes out. But I mean, right now, we have lawmakers that are willing to to roll the dice. Hmm. How about in Massachusetts, Colin? Do you see some of the same potential problems coming for lawmakers who are tinkering with these ballot measures? You know, I, I, I don't. Um, th- there was some backlash here uh, after the lawmakers delayed the implementation of the marijuana law. Uh, a lot of that backlash had to do with the way that they did it. They voted on the delay in very lightly attended informal sessions held between Christmas and New Year's Eve. Uh, so there were a lot of voters who were, uh, I think, a bit taken aback that, one, they could do that and that they did. Mm. But uh, since then, I haven't heard, I haven't heard much uh, in the way of complaints that that um, lawmakers tinkered with the law too much. Of course, while the the rewritten law was being debated, advocates said that that they went too far. But now that that law is in place, uh, everybody's focused on next year when retail uh, is expected to begin. Yeah. And do you see more of these ballot initiatives coming up in Massachusetts in the next couple of years? Is this going to be a way for more people to to get around the state legislature? Yes, absolutely. Uh, looking forward to next year, uh, a couple questions that are uh, on track to to potentially get to the ballot include a, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's an issue that's kicked around in the legislature for a few years. Um, paid family medical leave, same thing. It's uh, an issue that, that uh, isn't foreign to the state house, uh, And a 4% uh, surtax on income over a million dollars. That one looks headed for a court battle here, but uh, certainly there are progressive groups pushing that question, thinking that they can get this in place without having to deal with the House and the Senate. 
Colin Young covers the Massachusetts State House for State House News Service. Colin, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks also to Steve Missler. He's chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio. Always good to talk to you, Steve. Thanks again, John. Good to talk to you. As Colin told us there, it looks like a few issues will be going to ballot initiatives in Massachusetts next year. And a brand new WBUR poll shows that three of them are pretty popular. 82% of voters say they'd support a plan to provide paid family leave. But the other two questions they asked about both involve the tricky topic of taxes. 76% of voters tell WBUR that they support a so-called millionaire's tax on high-income earners. Noah Berger, president of the Liberal Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, says the state could use the extra income up to $2 billion a year. With the budget crisis we've had year after year, the state hasn't been able to make those kinds of long-term investments that could make a real positive difference in people's lives and the future of our economy. But 69% of voters also seem to support another initiative. This one would cut sales taxes. Lawmakers say that could cost the state $1.3 billion. Mass Inc. conducted the poll for the station, and according to pollster Steve Cazella, this kind of populist shift of tax dollars follows a national trend. You raise someone's taxes, you raise wealthy people's taxes, and you cut your own taxes. You know, the sales tax is paid by a much broader swath of people in Massachusetts. You know, anybody who buys something in Massachusetts pays the sales tax, whereas the so-called fair share or millionaire's tax would raise taxes only on a very small percentage of the population. If you want to know more about the ballot initiative poll, you can find it at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a trip inside a tent city built by heroin users. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. If you get high on heroin or fentanyl and overdose, you're up to 30 times more likely to die if you're homeless. That finding is no surprise to the drug users who live on the streets or in the woods, as WBUR's Martha Beaminger discovered on a visit to an urban tent community in Greater Boston. This network of 10 or so tents is off a paved trail near bustling shops and restaurants. One side of the walking, biking path is lined with luxury condos. On the other, ducks swim across a pond into fields of cattails. It's this beautiful marshy area. There's wildflowers, a bird sanctuary, lily pads. Kristen, a homeless drug user, guides me past the marsh. And then when you get into like the thicker wood parts and you see paths, More than a dozen, some pounded down by deer, underage drinkers or hikers, and some that lead to campsites. That's where you have these little tent communities of of homeless addicts. Just to see the two existing, like, together is is bizarre. (laughs) Bizarre and confusing. Kristen scrambles down the wrong path twice, looking for the tent where she left a bag and some bedding. No, it's up a little further, sorry. I actually haven't been here in like a, a week and a half. Two weeks, maybe. Kristen says she was detained on outstanding warrants and then hospitalized for an infected injection wound in one arm. We're only using first names in this story because Kristen and other tent dwellers use illegal drugs. I slip down a bank, walk a plank across some mud and up a short hill to a cluster of three tents. 
Kristen pokes her head into a maroon and gray one, the last place she called home. It's just like a, a messed up shooting gallery in there. She grabs a pill bottle, pops the cap, and sticks one finger inside. What is that? Ugh, something's wrong with that. Kristen salvages a pocket-sized pink notebook where she stores phone numbers and personal information. She'll ditch the clothes and bedding. It's all in there trashed, covered in like mysterious liquid, dirt, pipe tobacco, broken needles. It's bad. It's hard to tell what happened here, but looking around, Kristen sees signs of methamphetamine users who go into overdrive and stay up for days on end. Not the heroin users like herself, who tend to be more mellow. One of the side effects or behaviors, I don't know what you want to call it, of methamphetamine use is hoarding stuff. Candles, throw pillows. A few feet away, there's a microwave oven, a George Foreman grill, and a waffle maker. What the heck is a waffle maker doing out here? But whether you're using meth or heroin, this is not a clean or safe place to inject drugs. You're even just walking through here, your arms are getting dirty. They doubt you're going to use an alcohol wipe. You know, say someone comes and wants to shoot heroin and they see that spoon that was like in the mulch in the dirt. They're probably just going to give that a quick little wipe, if that. Some users avoid shooting up in the woods. Take Joe, who comes out of a large red tent near a creek, a space he's been sharing for about four months. My friends have been here longer, but oh. I'm, I'm tent sitting. Yeah, like house sitting kind Protecting of. clothes, money, and personal items. Holding down the rights to this flat spot near water, well out of sight from the paved path. Joe says he hasn't used heroin since the morning last February, when he and a buddy went to a porta potty and Joe overdosed. The friend called 911. They hit me four times with my cane and the paddles. I was dead, deader than dead. And Joe might still be dead if he'd overdosed in his tent. How would police or, or EMTs ever find you if you were in trouble? It's definitely like playing roulette out here. Kristen and Joe say they've never seen a police officer, EMT, or park ranger in these woods. But a few weeks after this interview, someone pitches a tent too close to the bike path and is spotted. Officers sweep the area, pushing the tent community deeper into the woods. With heavy bush clippers, a man named Bobby clears dead vines from inside a thicket, creating enough space for a tent that will be concealed by brush. Now look at that. That's great. Bobby and his boyfriend Eddie have been in these woods on and off for a year and know the risks. Bobby OD'd last winter. Eddie used four pumps of naloxone, all he had on hand to revive Bobby. That's scary. I, it was dark out. We had no phone. So and it was, was the middle of the night. So Imagine, no one to call, no, no way to call anybody, no one to so even it, contact. It so yeah. why is this better than a shelter? Uh, you can come and go as we want, and we feel, we feel safe. It's, it's ours. In a shelter, Eddie says, people take your stuff. They spread head lice, and they deal drugs. Shelters are not the place to be if you're trying to stay clean. That's just the reality. Eddie and Bobby say they're on methadone and haven't used heroin or fentanyl for two weeks. Their main concern right now is preparing the new tent site. Come here, okay. Push this off. In a dumpster near the bike path, Bobby spots thick laminated doors, luxury condo leftovers. We get two of those under the tent. Yeah, you keep off the ground, you're good to go. Bobby pushes aside a box of chrome door pulls. 
Yeah, we don't want those. Those are nice door handles. They really are, but we don't have any doors for them. <laughs> the doors, sans handles, may help Bobby and Eddie survive another winter outdoors. Two city boys who've come to love the woods. Yeah. And we had a Disney movie going on in front of our tent. That was the cutest thing. Our, our life really. was a Disney. We got ducklings waking us up. We get chipmunks and deers and wild turkeys like at 7 o'clock in the morning. They, they do are, still they stock their tent with naloxone hoping to have enough if one of them overdoses again, hoping they don't both go out at once, hoping they beat the odds of using drugs while homeless. That's Martha Biebinger reporting. Her colleague at WBUR, Simone Rios, has been charting the influx of Puerto Ricans into Massachusetts since Hurricane Maria left much of the island without power, water, or infrastructure. He went to Holyoke, and he introduces us to one young family trying to get its feet on the ground. Seven weeks ago, Hurricane Maria roared through the center of Puerto Rico. Winds battered the palm leaves and rain poured over the houses in the town of Barrancas. The moment brought terror to Herman Santini, who captured the storm on video from inside his home. Santini emerged the next day to see a town that looked like it had been hit by airstrikes. All the trees have fallen. You get the urge to cry. You don't feel like doing anything seeing everything destroyed. Puerto Rico is going to take a long time to recover from this. For Santini, the worst part was not being able to communicate with his wife, who was in Holyoke in the third trimester of her pregnancy. Two weeks went by, and I didn't know how she was doing. I couldn't tell her that I was okay either. On October 16th, a few days after Santini arrived on a packed flight from San Juan, his son, Yedriel, was born in Holyoke. The parents were visibly stressed. They had nowhere to go after leaving the hospital. Before the hurricane, the plan had been for the whole family to move to Puerto Rico. But they decided they couldn't bring a newborn to a place with no electricity and no running water. Santini's wife, Solimari Alicea, says it was a choice between two bad options. Over there I have my family and he had his job. And now we can't return because we don't have anywhere to go. Here at least we can get assistance. In Puerto Rico, there is no assistance now. Betty Medina Lichtenstein heads Enlace de Familias in Holyoke. The state has designated Enlace as the city's welcome center for new arrivals. Medina says each week they're receiving more than 60 families from Puerto Rico. Medina bounces from client to client, trying to match people's needs with the respective services. The task is massive, and Medina is short-staffed. I need to be able to do a follow-up with families. Like, you know, if somebody was here that needed daycare, I don't have anybody here that's daycare. How about vet services, child support, like someone raised, workman's comp. I don't have anything of that here. And so that we need to be able to have case managers that then are able to do that follow-up. When Hurricane Maria hit, Puerto Rico was already in the eye of a storm, a decade-long recession that has left the island bankrupt with tens of billions in debt. The hurricane turned a steady flow of emigration into a raging flood. Researchers from the City University of New York estimate more than 200,000 people could flee Puerto Rico each year, as many as 14,000 to Massachusetts. 
A month and a half after the hurricane, state officials say more than a thousand have already sought help. Medina says she sees a generational divide among those that plan to stay and those who will return. It's mostly the elders that want to go back. The young people are like, I'm done with that, unless they own property there. And there isn't a lot of young people that own, and I'm saying more about millennium age, um, but the elders are planning on going back. Herman Santini tries out the faucet and stove in his family's temporary home in Greenfield, 30 miles north of Holyoke. The triple-decker apartment was found by the nonprofit Enlace and belongs to the State Department of Housing. I'm more at peace now that we have a place to stay and a place to cook, and we're able to provide a stable home for the baby. Santini is grateful, but he says he already misses life on the island. In Puerto Rico, you know a lot of people. And a lot of people know you. It's very different here. Over there, when you're walking somewhere, somebody stops to give you a lift. Over here, no. Here, you take the bus. But Santini says his priority now is to provide stability for his family. And it's here in Massachusetts that he can make that happen. Now, he needs to get a job, learn to speak English, and find a permanent place for his family to call home. That's Simone Rios reporting. We'll travel a bit further west on the Mass Pike now to the Bucolic Berkshires. It's a county that's filled with art, museums, galleries, theater and dance companies, and it's the summer home to the Boston Pops. But the arts community's been in turmoil there over a plan by the Berkshire Museum to sell off some of its prized artwork, including two Norman Rockwell paintings, to fund an expansion. The plan angered many in the art world, and it got the attention of the state's attorney general who's working to stop the sale. Adam Frenier of New England Public Radio has been following this story closely, and he joins us from Pittsfield. Why don't you describe the Berkshire Museum for us? What exactly is it? The Berkshire Museum is a museum that dates back to 1903. It's right in the middle of downtown Pittsfield, and it, it highlights a couple of different uh, aspects of, of things. Uh, certainly it, an art museum, and that's what's caused a lot of the controversy, but it also has uh, some other things involving uh, science, particularly natural science. Uh, it has a, a large exhibit in there uh, kind of geared to younger folks, and that's sort of where they want to go with the museum if uh, all things go according to plan is, is to focus more on that and, and a little bit less on uh, fine arts and, and paintings and mobiles and things like that. So they've got to raise some money to realize that vision, and, and that's why they want to auction off some of this art? That's partially the reason why, John. Uh, certainly, they want $40 million to renovate uh, their 1903 building to go ahead and, and, and start building toward that new vision. But they also have some financial problems, the degree of which has been up for debate in the courts and in legal filings. But they'd like to raise an additional $20 million uh, for their endowment to, to help put them uh, back on better financial footing. Uh, museum officials have said uh, without this funding that uh, their future is very bleak uh, if they're not able to uh, go ahead with this auction. But for a museum like this, it's got certainly some assets, but if a couple of the really important assets are paintings by Norman Rockwell and others, why exactly would you want to get rid of those? 
Well, they say that it just doesn't fit into this new vision that they've talked about. They, they want to have more exhibits uh, that are kind of of a high-tech nature, more hands-on, more inter- interdisciplinary between local history and, and natural history. And uh, paintings by Rockwell and, and other people uh, going back uh, a century or more uh, really don't fit into that vision. So they were seen as expendable, and they're also seen as quite valuable. So uh, those are some of the 40 originally that uh, were slated for auction. Of course, part of this is that there's a Norman Rockwell Museum not uh, an hour down the road in the southern part of the county, and just up the way there's the Clark and Mass Mocha. Are, are they saying there's an awful lot of art museums in the Berkshires? We don't need to be another one? Uh, that hasn't quite come out, but I'm sure it has something to do with it. In fact, uh, there's been even some confusion between the Norman Rockwell Museum and the Berkshire Museum as to who's actually selling the paintings. There's been some people who thought it was the Norman Rockwell Museum that were uh, looking to unload a couple of the paintings. That certainly is not the case. In fact, uh, the, their director has written in the Berkshire Eagle, the uh, newspaper in Berkshire County, uh, asking the Berkshire Museum folks to kind of step back and see if there are other alternatives. So why don't you take us through some of the legal back and forth, because we've been following your reporting and trying to figure out exactly where this all is in the courts. Where are we right now? Right now, the state appeals court uh, late last week issued an injunction against the auction. The auction was scheduled to take place on on Monday the 13th, the first auction, the one including the two Norman Rockwell paintings. Going back to the beginning of November, there were two sets of plaintiffs, some involving, or one group involving Norman Rockwell's children that had filed for their own uh, injunction or restraining order to stop the museum's uh, sale. Uh, A superior court judge, a a low court judge uh, in Berkshire County, found in favor of the museum uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, including a lack of legal standing and the fact that the museum had the right to sell the paintings. And then the state attorney general's office uh, also became involved, and they're the ones who filed the request for appeal and injunction uh, with the state appeals court, uh, which was upheld, and that injunction is in place for another month, although that could be extended. So right now, uh, both sides are in the midst of uh, a lot of legal briefs and filings with the state court in Boston, and uh, it does remain to be seen when that will be uh, heard or if it will even be heard and maybe just uh, taken on on written argument. You talked about the lawsuit that involves some of Norman Rockwell's uh, family and other plaintiffs. Here's uh, some tape of Michael Keating. He's he's the lawyer for Rockwell Sons and some others. He's talking about the museum's administration, and he's criticizing them for not revealing their plans to sell off these paintings until relatively recently. They knew that they didn't want to get into a discussion. They knew that they didn't want to face this, two lawsuits and an investigation by the office of the attorney general. Now, Adam, this is a a lawyer who's involved in an emotional case in court, but I got to say that there's quite a bit of emotion in his voice. Is this an emotional issue for the people of Pittsfield and in Berkshire County? I think it is a very emotional issue. Of course, if you're not familiar with Berkshire County, a large part of its economy is tourism. And uh, you just mentioned, John, the various art museums in the county. Those bring in big dollars, uh, particularly in the summertime, uh, people coming in and visiting. It's something that uh, a lot of folks in Berkshire County uh, pay a lot of attention to. They are patrons of the arts, and they are uh, very concerned uh, about that for the county's well-being. And there's a lot of people within the art industry that are very concerned about this setting a precedent where if a museum's struggling, they'll just start selling a painting here or, or perhaps a vase there or, or, or just to try to raise money to try to uh, get 
uh, better financial footing. In one case in Delaware, there was a museum there that sold off four paintings, including one by Winslow Homer and another by uh, Andrew Wyeth to pay off some construction debt. And, and there are a lot of people very nervous that uh, museums will do this, and then people in turn won't support uh, the industry at large uh, because they feel like they don't know where their money's going or that the, the works that they donate may be just sold off. So what happens next in all this? Well, we'll be waiting to see what the Massachusetts Appeals Court decides to do. Uh, the auction is on hold uh, at this point, and, and the museum this week actually went ahead and, and put out a press release saying that the, they want this to be heard very quickly because they're worried about the, the value of the paintings dropping because people lose interest in the sale and that their financial health really depends on it. It could be a months-long process, however, depending on how long the court uh, takes. You know, that's, that's up to those justices, and uh, that certainly does remain to be seen, but it seems like it may be a little while before we, we hear their opinion. Adam Frenier covers Berkshire County, Massachusetts for New England Public Radio. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Coming up, finding peace on the farm after war. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Nearly 4,000 Vermonters have served in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. Many are still dealing with the invisible wounds of the nation's longest running wars, and readjustment to civilian life has been especially difficult. But some have started to find peace in a surprising place, as VPR's Peter Hirschfeld reports. There's an old hill farm at the end of a long dirt road in Norwich. Much of the pasture has been taken over by dense shrubs and tall hardwoods, but an army veteran named Brett has brought in a small flock of sheep to start reclaiming the soil. This is Raven. She's kind of the matriarch. Hi, sweetie. I'd never had any ideas that I'd get into farming or agriculture. It just wasn't what I did. And it's become something I just can't live without now. Brett's serious about that last part. Farming, he says, has actually saved his life. Because for a long time, after Brett got back from the war, he wasn't sure if he'd be able to keep going. You can never say goodbye to the kind of experience that combat brings. Um, it's just terrible for everybody, you know. There's no, there's no winners, there's no victory, there's no... People are hurt and broken and damaged and gone. 
You see, about 10 years ago, Brett spent a year in Afghanistan. He was, in military speak, what's known as an embedded tactical trainer, which means he basically turned tribal militias into members of the Afghan National Army. And then he conducted combat operations with them. Privacy is important to Brett, so we're not using his last name. But he says he's still haunted by what he witnessed during those operations. And the Brett that came home from Afghanistan, he says, is a very different person than the one who deployed there. Prior to going to Afghanistan, I was a very kind of gregarious, outgoing, socializing. Uh, I just, I love people. I still do, you know, but it's different now. The smell of diesel, for instance, or even just a loud noise, were enough to send him into a quiet panic. Then suddenly you find yourself in a parking lot and you, you're just looking for a way to get out. It's, it's uncomfortable and, and, and kind of puts other people off. And then Brett found farming. He's raising eight pigs this year, and they spend their days grubbing for food in an expansive pen that has access to the woods, clean water, even acorns and apples that fall along the tree line. Brett says it's goats that first turned him on to farming, two problem goats he took on a few years ago from someone who was looking to get rid of them. It sounds silly, but, you know, a goat would come up and just look at you like, hey, <laughs> life is good, man. You know, like the sun's shining, got clean water, and you're taking care of me. And it's those simple little things that changed the way I looked at my life. Brett says something clicked for him then. Taking care of animals, doing chores in the field, it quieted his mind. He could relax, even be happy. Brett's a full-time homesteader now, tending to a small farm while his wife is at work and his two kids are at school. He's worked out a lease arrangement on a pasture, a three-minute ATV ride from his home, and that's where Brett spends his days now, communing with his pigs and his sheep. He's still a farming newbie, making lots of mistakes, but he's figuring it out as he goes, and he hopes that one day he'll be able to invite other struggling vets to his corner of land, and that this soil and this air and these creatures might do for them what they've done for Brett. That's Peter Hirschfeld reporting from Vermont. This story is part of a VPR series on veteran farmers. There's a link on our website, nextnewengland.org. Now, life on a Vermont farm might sound peaceful enough to you, but New Hampshire Public Radio's Sean Hurley says he's found the most peaceful place in the universe. It's a place he calls Moose Painting Pond. I found the path to the pond and the most peaceful place in the universe about six years ago while wandering around Sandwich Notch Road. Moose Painting Pond, I call it. Its real name is Atwood Pond, but there's no sign saying so, and the path is unnamed and unmarked, and many years passed before I learned it was really Atwood Pond, and by then, it was too late. And I'm heading there now on the small matter of a toad and an old rusty pail and a moose, and a painter. It's the sort of pond any moose would like. One muddy shore is stuck with reeds, and the other hides in the hold of a rocky bluff, the sort of pond a painter would paint. The pond means to be one pond, but the beavers have parceled it into thirds, using the snowman system, with the smallest, lowest pond, the snowman's head, melting finely down into the little staircase of a stream. To get to the pond, one crosses this little staircase, and then passes through a narrow bower of pines, and then mounts the sways of a hobbit hill, 
until one finally comes upon the rocky bluff overlooking the pond, where one sets one's luggage down and collapses in some discreet way, having arrived at the most peaceful place in the universe. It was in the pine bower that I first met the toad. As I stepped over him, he stepped under me. On my return, I found him waiting still. I lingered a while to see what might happen next. The end, I finally said, and walked around him as he walked around me. As I come now into the narrow bower, I'm not surprised he's not there. It was a few years ago at least, but there aren't many fairy tales about fifty-year-old men and toads, and maybe I ended the story too soon. I found the rusty pail hanging from a branch on my very first visit to the pond, and it can usually be spotted somewhere, on or beside or above the path approaching the Hobbit Hill. I have an attachment to this rusty pail because it's never where it was. Dangling from trees, full of leaves on a stone, full of water in the leaves. People do this, I know. Pick it up because it's old and from another time, and set it down elsewhere in a condition separate from the way they found it, as though adding a small strange word to the story of the rusty pail. But today, as I look, I can't find it. I rise over the Hobbit Hill, and when I come to the rocky bluff overlooking Moose Painting Pond, I set my luggage down and collapse discreetly, having arrived at the most peaceful place in the universe. I look around for the moose I've never seen, for the equally absent painter. To somewhat expect a continuation of a fairy tale with a toad on the trail is a kind of fairy tale itself. To be curious about a strange new word added to the story of a rusty pail is to suppose there is one, and to look for a moose that is never there, and a painter less so, is, regardless, to find some arrangement between the things I make up and the things nature does. Who can tell me that the toad and the rusty pail aren't near, that the moose and the painter aren't on their way? That's NHPR's North Country reporter, Sean Hurley. We've got photos of the most peaceful place in the universe on our Facebook page. It's at Next New England. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Sam Doran and Dan Mozzie. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. You can follow Next on Twitter for show updates and New England news all week long. We're at Next New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. 